Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus uh, Deep Space 9, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Take a screenshot and email the screenshot and your question to us at b5bsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question live on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, please hit us up again at email at b5bsds9 at gmail.com. Babylon 5 versus Deep Space Nine, the greatest podcast about space stations in the 1990s. This is uh, Bob from the Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing today, Matt? Doing pretty well. Uh, two interesting episodes that we're going to cover this week. Uh, not quite sure how I feel about both of them, but we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> right, right. So we're covering uh, Deep Space Nine, Season 2, Episode 19, Blood Oath a.k.a. the one where Jadzia gets interesting, in contrast to uh, Matt's description. Oh, which is uh, the one where Jadzia thinks she's a Klingon. Yeah, and that aired on the 27th of March, 1994, and then we're looking at uh, Babylon 5, Season 1, Episode 16, Voice in the Wilderness, Part 1 of a two-part epic, which aired on the 20th of July, 1994. A plot for us on Blood Oath. All right, we've got... Three, three Klingon captains from the original Star Trek, we've got Kor, Koloth, and Kang, they arrive on the station to find Curzon Dax in order to fulfill an octogenarian blood oath against the mysterious pirate, the albino, who murdered each of the captain's firstborn sons. Right, right. And then in the B-plot, which is really just... Uh... Uh, emphasizing another aspect of the A-plot, because it's really a pretty focused episode, you have uh, Sisko, Kira, Koloth, and Kang all in different ways try to dissuade Jadzia from fulfilling Curzon's blood oath, but the drunken songster Kor is delighted to see Jadzia, his old friend. Yeah, this is really like Klingon Jadzia-heavy episode, if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I, think I softened on Jadzia quicker in this rewatch, but I remember the last time I watched DS9 all the way through, I felt like this was pretty much the episode where they figured out what to do with her. I think I'm not as... I think I think they had some good episodes with her before this or some good moments with her in episodes before this. But yeah, I think usually people think of this as the episode where they kind of figure out how to make Dax interesting and how to really use the prior wives in an interesting way. Yeah, and I really appreciated the way they brought in the Klingons from the original series. 
I do have a couple of questions about that, though. Uh, and this, this just goes deeper into the lore, I guess. But I know about the Augment virus, and that's why they changed. That's the explanation they have for why they changed from the original series to what it is now. But we all know that's just because that was makeup, prosthetics got better. Yeah, yeah, and it was so it was such a stupid, stupid retcon. Like it, they came up with it in Star Trek Enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it's just so stupid because, like, in a later episode in Deep Space Nine, we get the perfect explanation for it, which is Worf saying very heatedly, "We don't speak of it to outsiders." <laughs> and, like, that should be it. Like it, it should never have been mentioned again. Right, right. Uh, I remember that. I thought that was awesome. But like, do we ever get a decent explanation as to how they're able to revert from looking like that? Um. So I I haven't read a lot of the paracanon with uh, Kor, Koloth, and Kang, uh, but I did go back and read their memory beta uh, entries twice. That's how dedicated I am to research. I read wikis twice. And the first time I got the impression that they didn't, it wasn't such a big deal. Uh, like, But then reading it more carefully after you asked this question on the second pass through this morning, it sounds like they all get the cures for the augment virus at different points. Like it sounds like um, Koloth gets it um, a few years before they meet the albino. Core uh, gets it around the time they meet the albino, and then Kang gets it shortly after. Apparently, Kang and his wife Mara have a more resistant form of the virus, or, or I don't even know how accurate it is to say that they have the virus because it's like they're it's like their ancestor of a generation or two before got the virus. And then, you know, they're born uh, the way they're born as a result of that. So that actually kind of raises an interesting question of even how much you could say they have the virus. Anyway, what, whatever, however you would characterize it in accurate terms, um, Kang and Mara have a more resistant form of it. And so they have to get a, a second and a different cure about a year after the three captains and Curzon meet the albino. I mean, I personally kind of like that there's, like, different uh, looks to the Klingons. You know what I mean? Like, I, I wish, I almost wish they would have kept that. Because uh, they kind of did that in Discovery. Um, if you look at the way they're, they look. And, like, uh, Valk is also a, an albino Klingon. It's like the uh, villain of this particular episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's actually something, Star Trek, and we've talked about this before. I, I think we've kind of talked about it in context of Babylon 5 doing a little bit better job than star trek of showing like diversity within alien species right um but yeah that I, that would be interesting if yeah klingons just did have like different appearances and i think like in some of the older para canon about klingons they do say that i mean it's been years and years since i've read the the john ford novel the final reflection which before star trek the next generation people kind of took it as the definitive uh, Star Trek novel about Klingons. It's really a really great novel in my memory. I, I haven't reread it, in, you know, in 25, 30, well, probably 25 years, but I really loved it when I read it. Um, but the way it describes Klingons, um, I believe there are like different races of Klingons in that novel, if I recall correctly. It's not a big deal, but it's like an aside. But the other thing is the Klingons in that novel are basically kind of more like we would think of Romulans as in like more strategic and sort of sneaky and dedicated to like dedicated to a warrior ethic, but dedicated to it in a, a sort of uh, crafty way. 
Whereas in the uh, Paracanon novels for the original series before Next Gen, the ones about the Romulans, especially the ones by Diane Duane, and she has several about the Romulans, show the Romulans as more of the kind of honor-bound belligerents that you know we would kind of associate with the Klingons after Star Trek The Next Generation. So it's so I really, as a kid, I loved both that John Ford Klingon novel and the Diane Duane Romulan novels, but it's kind of interesting how they sort of got invalidated uh, as Next Generation swapped a little bit their portrayals of the Klingons and the Romulans. Let's kind of go through each Klingon for a moment and just kind of tell us about each one and where we could see them other than this episode. Yeah, so we first see Kor in uh, the first Klingon episode, which is uh, season one of Star Trek, Errand of Mercy. And uh, we also see him in the animated season one episode, Time Trap, which I'd forgotten, but in that episode, um, he has his wife, Callie, who is um, also a science officer. Um, a fun fact about her, she, she but not Kor, uh, appears in a crossover comic between the animated Star Trek and Transformers. <laughs> So okay, let me let me let me, let me touch yeah, that yeah. for a second. Star Trek and Transformers—that's an IDW thing, correct? Yeah, yeah. IDW okay. loves Star Trek crossovers. Oh, they're they're like they're yeah. like pumping out toys too, you know? Because I always have to talk about toys. They have like they they legit sell the Transformers that like get, turn into uh, like everything from our our childhood. Like they have like the Ecto One, the DeLorean from Back to the Future. And I think I I may be wrong with this. I think they're working on coming out with it with a USS Enterprise is going to be insane yeah i think they do that in the comic although i haven't read it right but is that does idw put that out or is that like the toy company putting it out i mean it, they're so they're interconnected because like it's almost like the gi joe back in the day how like marvel gi joe all everything like was coming out together. oh yeah but so, i mean i i think it it's aren't, aren't, transformers are hasbro right yeah it is it is it is the toy company putting out what i'm saying is okay, like they're yeah, getting yeah. the i guess the inspiration is coming from the comics the comics yeah that makes sense yeah because yeah, the same yeah, way marvel and gi joe did yeah 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 and because like famously idw is does like a lot of licensed comics like star trek and transformers and doctor who and a bunch of other stuff i can't think of off the top of my head oh, yeah, i think they, they have a ton of licenses i think they even have the licenses for the marvel kids comics because i don't think marvel produces those anymore Okay. Okay. Nice. So I, nice. I did I did pull up a picture of the uh, the Enterprise as a Transformer. It's it's not as cool as I thought it would be. <laughs> but you so know, the nacelles are on the back, and they're like big weapons. It's kind of do you cool. have nostalgia for the Transformers? No, I don't have any. I, it was it was yeah. a, it was after us, I think. Yeah, that's that, or, that's sorry, before us, before us, before us, before us. Yeah, before yeah, us, yeah. Yeah, because I, I think I even saw some of it as a kid, but it just never stuck with me in any sort of way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, so our second Klingon is we've got Koloth, who uh, famously appeared in uh, Star Trek uh, Season 2, Trouble with Tribbles, which means we'll get to see him later in one of the great DS9 episodes in that form. And uh, he also appeared in the animated Season 1 sequel to uh, Trouble with Tribbles, More Tribbles, More Troubles. And then finally, we've got Kang, who appeared in uh, Star Trek Season 3, Day of the Dove, with a science officer, Mara, who I already mentioned. And she's also his wife. And then a fun fact I found uh, trolling uh, memory beta is that when uh, their son, named after Dax, was born, they spelled it uh, capital D, A, Q, capital S, which I thought was cute. That's adorable. <laughs> 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 yeah so one other quick thing i wanted to say was um 
if you're really curious to hear like the origins of the octogenarian blood oath there's a star trek novel called excelsior forged in fire which actually sounds really good i've never read it but the plot description sounds fun and it tells the story of the albino and the three captains um it also involves uh hikaru sulu assuming the command of the excelsior and aiding the pursuit of the albino and it has Curzon uh, serving as Sarek's uh, deputy in negotiation with the Three Kilions. Um, apparently, the albino also attempts and fails to kill Demora Sulu in revenge against Sulu. Uh, apparently, she has some sort of immunity because of a prior infection. And uh, curiously, the novel reveals the albino to be Cog. Um, a cousin of Kors, who's abandoned by the Klingon eugenicism, apparently both because he's an albino and because he has a lot of genetic uh, deficiencies. And uh, he's raised by Orion pirates. And it's kind of interesting because, like, yeah, you mentioned Vok, who's a famous albino Klingon from Discovery. But it's not clear in this episode that the albino is even Klingon. And, you know, he has that line about, like, filthy Klingons, which doesn't have to mean he's not Klingon, but could imply that he's not Klingon. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that the uh, novel just goes ahead and lays it out officially that Albino is Klingon and family decor. Yeah, uh, uh, looking at him, he does look uh, rather Klingon. Yeah, I mean, but would... he, he does look similar to it, but you could also see him not being, I guess. I'm... I'm reminding me of uh uncle Ru uncle rufus on uh boondocks uncle ruckus ruckus not rufus ruckus <laughs> you know you know there was a supposed to be a uncle ruckus uh spinoff live action movie no <laughs> what <laughs> yeah like he even um they they ran a i think it was a maybe it wasn't a patreon it was a kickstarter campaign i think for it like i don't think the campaign succeeded but they like ran a Kickstarter campaign for it. And there was like a live trailer. I think if I recall right, it's just like some guy in the uncle ruckus makeup talking, but, uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, one thing I did want to tell you though, uh, there's this like theory apparently that Laurel and Vok, the baby that they have actually grows mm -hmm. up to be this albino. Oh, that's interesting. So if you want to try to put all the, you know, everything, make everything canonical, there you go. Okay. Yeah, I could get down with that. I could get down with that. Uh, one other thing. Do, I think the Boondocks are supposed to come back, like, this year or next year. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, I've... HBO Max is supposed to... It's it's kind of unclear if you're supposed to think of it as a new season or a reboot. And I, it's also unclear, since the Trump era is over, if they'll still go this, idea, go this way. But as I understand it, the pitch is like... Uh, Huey, Riley, and Granddad move into their, you know, their suburban Maryland neighborhood, and it's sort of ruled over by Uncle Ruckus, who is, uh, you know, acting like a Trump-esque figure. So, oh. the the humor may feel a little dated uh, at this point, but I, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> it yeah, sounds it's, great to me. It's still be funny, obviously. Oh yeah, certainly, certainly. All right, I did. I, I ran. Oh, a, what was your poll? Yeah, yeah, I ran a poll, and uh, the poll question was in the episode Blood Oath. Was Jadzia justified in disobeying direct orders from Cisco to uphold an oath Curzon made with the Klingon trio? And uh, had some interesting feedback. 87 people said yes. Uh, 39 people said no. I'm sorry, 25 people said no. 39 people said, for the Klingons, yes. For the Federation bureaucrats, no. Which, I mean, 
true, but I, that was the reason I was questioning. Man, we got a lot of cultural relativists in our uh, poll-taking apparently, audience. Apparently we do. And then we had one vote for, they actually added, you could add to the poll. They said they don't know who knows what ethics looks like in the future, which I'm like, yeah. But then um, someone else said yes, because look what happened when Cisco let diplomatic relations fall through with the Klingons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good foreshadowing. What was the first um, answer the person added? Uh, don't we know who knows what ethics looks like in the future. Huh. Okay. Okay. Uh, right. prefer, that's, a, that's a so we've got cultural and we've got temporal or historical relativism. We got yeah. a lot of relativism in this uh, in this in this uh, audience. Couple that's of, interesting. A couple of comments on the poll. Starfleet should take precedence over an oath by a different host. So changing host means Starfleet should take precedence. Uh, she should follow her conscience, but there should have been some disciplinary action, which I agree with. Uh, seems like there's really no repercussions for anything you do on ps9 as of right now like, well, <laughs> what one thing is i mean i think the episode does make clear that she does like that like trills aren't bound by the oaths of prior lives so she doesn't have to do it in any obligatory sense um and then the other the other thing i would say is just that Hey, I, I didn't re i didn't watch that the scene where cisco's trying to dissuade her from going very closely but does he actually forbid her from going, or is he just telling her that there will be consequences if she goes? Telling her there'll be consequences. I mean, he, 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 yeah. she, but she didn't specifically says that she will not. She goes. She says something about like, disobeying a direct order, which. Yeah, know. she's like asking him not to order her to not go. Right. And oh, and I think too that a lot of the a lot of Cisco's concern and Kira's concern is about whether or not Jadzia like will kill. And I mean, it's maybe a little unrealistic, but as the episode shows us, it doesn't appear like she kills anyone, right? Like it seems like they're mostly just knocking out uh, the albinos men and moving on. And then, you know, obviously she's, you know, I guess she, she's accessory to uh, the albinos murder, but she's not, um, she's not the one who does it. So, I mean, in that sense, it's maybe like it would be a different story if she'd killed the albino herself. Yeah. One person had an interesting take. They said, no, the rules regarding hosting a symbiote are very clear. When a host dies, they are dead. The new host is completely disconnected from the old host's life. Marriages end. Business partnerships dissolve. The previous host's children are not your children. I mean, I think that I think that sounds right to trill culture, and it it certainly seems the most workable way to do trill culture. But on the other hand, like for dramatic purposes, that's almost never the case with Dax, right? Like we we already had that season one episode where you know Dax has an extradition hearing about a murder that Curzon allegedly committed. You know, obviously we have this episode. We'll have a, a famous episode to come about Dax resuming an old romance uh, from a prior host. Yeah, I think that the that commenter is correct about what Trill Culture says. Obviously, DS9 disregards that all the damn time. Dax is a rule breaker. <laughs> Gen Z is a rule breaker. Well, all right, Esri, Esri breaks it too, man. Yeah, that's true. Um, before we get out, I did want to uh, say that I... I think uh, Kang got all my favorite lines this episode, which was surprising because everybody just remembers Core uh, being drunk and being very excited to see Jadzia, his old friend, which is a very lovely scene. 
I, I really like that scene. But uh, Kang has, uh, would you eat from the heart of the albino Jedzia Dax and uh, <laughs> look upon your executioner's killer of children, which I, I love about those lines. All right, so let's move on to Babylon 5, which yeah, this episode... Not your favorite? Not my favorite so far, no. no nowhere near. Um, this is the one where Ivanova says she's God. Hey, she apologizes for it. <laughs> so, Voice in the Wilderness Part 1. The A-plot is Sinclair and Ivanova try to rescue Dr. Tasaki and his team when a geological survey of Epsilon 3, the planet Babylon 5's nearest to, triggers an ancient automated defense system. Yep, and then in the B-plot, Free Mars launches an armed uprising on Mars. Garibaldi stops creeping on winners long enough to beg her to use her Psycor contacts on Mars to get him in touch with his ex, Lise Hampton. And in the C-plot, Delenn reunited with her old minister, Jeral, uh, but she and Jeral are unable to help Londo discern the meaning of the hokey pokey. <laughs> I didn't like the c I don't know what it was. Just the humor was not there for me. Um, I I don't I don't like the plot of this episode, and I also don't like what it sets up for the larger mythos. But I will say I was pleasantly surprised by how much I liked some of the character work in this episode. I didn't like the specifically the scenes of Ivanova um, giving the uh, Babylon Five mandate about how Ivanova is God, and you will never question Ivanova. That's a that's delightful, and a lot of the Londo stuff uh, is bad. You're right, but specifically the scene where he's comforting uh, Garibaldi, and he tells Garibaldi about how uh, his first wife, who was a lowborn dancer, seduced him into a quick marriage. That was really delightful. Yes, that that was a good scene. Yes, I agree. But other than that, I was just saying. So. To- <laughs> So on the on the planet Epsilon Three, was the defense system actually like was it protecting that alien thing or was it keeping it on lockdown? That'll that'll be clear next episode. Next episode, okay, all right. Uh, I, I mean, I guess because I guess with the visions like that the, they were seeing about the alien or whatever that it made it seem like he was trying to escape, but I didn't I didn't understand. All right, yeah. Um, and in in answer to your quest, your second question, if if the alien is a prisoner. Or if he's in control of the defenses, uh, I guess I can go ahead and give a spoiler and say both. Okay. All right. And so, then, uh, so yeah. tell me, tell me this: Why was Babylon Five built near this particular planet? Like, and did they not survey it before they went over it to find this kind of stuff before they built uh, the giant space station? I mean, I must confess, I wasn't paying that much attention to this episode in my my third or fourth time through it, but. I think they, the dialogue makes clear that they did survey the planet. They None of this had ever come up. And so they, you know, hence part of the mystery of the episode. Um, and I think as to why, I think, as I understand it, the Epsilon Arati system that Babylon 5 in is a pretty strategic uh, transit point. Like, I, I don't know, like, where exactly in relation to, like, Earth, uh, the Centauri Republic, um, Narn, the Narn regime, and uh, the Minbari Federation it is, but, you know, the assumption is it's at a fairly, like, strategic midway point between them. Mm. So, I, you know, in, in that way, I think it's kind of dictated by, like, the diplomatic needs. That makes sense. Epsilon Iridani is the name of the system. Yeah, thank you. Which I, I, I think is a real star. I should have 
looked up some information about it because I think that I think that was something that JMS liked to do was use real star real stars for some of the more important planets in the Babylon Five universe. Um, we also we discussed the, the Free Mars uprising last week was the first mention of that. So I was excited to know that there's actually like a continuation going on between the episodes. But I'm getting weird vibes. They mentioned that you know with Garibaldi asking Winters to contact her people there and that there's apparently like some kind of secret base or something on Mars or secret group of them on Mars near that colony. Yeah, it, it's a little confusing because it's it's supposed to be secret, but I I mean I think later episodes kind of, will kind of make clear it basically is Psychor headquarters. Okay. So that I don't know that seems a little a little bit contradictory, but yeah, my understanding is that it's it's both, and I did sort of enjoy the explanation that the psychor flunky that Winters was talking to had, which is like, well, even if he suspects, we're not going to give him confirmation. That that <laughs> that that was a that was a nice little exchange too. Yeah, I, I just it, the more I the more I hear about psychor having secret bases and stuff more, and what we talked about last week with them having some kind of like. Uh, them getting in bed with the with the Earth Alliance. Yeah, I will say, don't expect the Psychor plot to build at the same rate as the other plots, because on average, you only have like I would say two to three uh, big uh, telepathic episodes per season on average. Okay. So don't expect it to build at the same rate, and also just because of the way the later seasons shake out. Um, the telepath plots do go some interesting places. They also go some really bad places, but unlike the, some of the other narrative lines in Babylon five, they don't really resolve in any, in anything like a satisfactory way. Um, which is, which is interesting. I think I'm going to read, um, a, a novel that maybe tries to resolve them. I'll, I'll report back on how it is. Although that'll be in months and months uh, once we're, you know, once we're more through the show. Yeah. But yeah, just just two cautions there. Does Free Mars ever turn into anything? Uh, yeah. Although it's it it also is a, it's a kind of slow burn, but not as interesting or important as the the telepath stuff. But yeah, Free Mars Free Mars will continue to be very important. Okay. Um, it's also sort of interesting, like in Crusade, which I'm watching now, you've got a couple of Martian characters who are like very sort of adamant about disliking Earth, which is interesting. And I also thought it was kind of interesting, like how how much emotional and personal ties that all three of the main the main human characters in this episode had to Mars, which was kind of that was kind of an interesting touch. This episode ends in a cliffhanger, and. It was like your typical 90s cliffhanger where it, the screen freezes and it says to be continued. I, that's It's fine for streaming like now because I can just go to the next episode. But like mm -hmm. back then, that was like how most of these things ended. I don't know if I would have been as uh, okay with it. Uh, not being able to see whatever was coming through the jump gate. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like the cheesy cliffhangers, man. Uh, it's a... Uh... <laughs> I mean, if the, you know, if the alternative is just the Great Reset, um, which is, you know, to some extent how you would do after episodic science fiction TV. Yeah, because you just, I mean, with streaming, you just go to the next episode, and then you're like, okay, cool. Like, you're, so you know it's there, but with, with this, I guess so, you had to wait a week. In your, in your memory, like, I think, 
I think people usually tend to think of like, especially the Star Trek The Next Generation uh, season cliffhangers, like pretty famously, right? Like it's pretty fondly. Like there's a really, you know, obviously the best one is the best of both worlds where I think the last thing you see is Riker telling them to fire at the board cube. And, you know, you're not sure is, is the weapon going to work? Is it going to kill Picard? Right. Like that's probably the best season cliffhanger. And then there's definitely cool things about best of both worlds part two, but it also pretty easily and patly like walks back a lot of the, a lot of the big stakes of best of both worlds part one. And I, I think that tends to be the, the trend with um, Star Trek The Next Generation, a two-part season enders, you get like huge stakes and then you get like the season premiere kind of slowly walks things back. I feel like uh, Voyager really did that with the Equinox two-parter later in its run. And e they even sort of do that in like the Next Generation time travel one, uh, Time's Arrow, where like they find Data's head. Um, so if we, if we take it as a given that like season cliffhangers, like the first part tends to be good and the second part tends to not be good. Is that, is that your general experience with two part episodes or do you think that only applies to like Star Trek season cliffhangers? Um, I, I think in general, I think you said a lot with general, in general with, with, uh, two part episodes, because I feel like it's just a it's a ploy to get you to watch the next episode. So they act like they're going to completely uh, change the status quo, like in the, in your, in your pick article, in your, uh, uh, in the example of the Borg. Uh, mm -hmm. You would think that, you know, if this weapon works and destroys the Borg cube and kills Picard, you're going to have a, you're going to have a, you know, a whole different set of everything. It's all going to be different. Everything's going to change, you know, Picard's yeah. going to stay as Lakutas. He's going to become the, the main villain in the entire series at this point. Okay. But in the immortal words of the twin pinks, the twin peaks meme, once we cross, it'll all be different. Right. Exactly. And it's not, that's not what happens. It, it kind of just fizzles out in that second episode after you, you know, realize what, you know, they, they find a way to figure it out. And there's yeah, the second rare... episode always has to be the containment episode. Right, the second episode just takes it back, and there's very minor changes, and everything's back to normal, you know, back to what it was before. And yes, that's what I see most of the time with two-part episodes. I don't, I mean, even in, I'm trying to think of some other shows that have had that. Uh, you think of any off the top of your head? Uh, I, I wish I could. I mean, Batman the Animated Series comes to mind. That's what popped in my head, too. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. That, that they did the same thing there with a couple of episodes. Although sometime, sometimes they would actually commit to it, because wasn't the origin of Two-Face a two-parter? Yes, it was. Um, like, it, But you knew that was going to happen. I mean, that's just... Yeah, yeah, because it's a pre-established character, so it's like it's getting you to where you already know you're going. Um, yeah. I, I mean, the Justice League cartoon tended to be more three-part. No, not always, but it was two or three-part in structure in its first couple of seasons. But I honestly, I don't remember it well enough to comment on the plot mechanics of it. Oh, uh, okay, how about uh, Who Shot Mr. Burns on The Simpsons? Did you ever watch that? <laughs> well, so remember, Matt, I was forbidden as a child from watching <laughs> The Simpsons because uh, Bart was disrespectful to authority. Oh, right. Um, I, I did watch some of, like, the classic Simpsons uh, when I was uh, dating a girl in college whose roommate had them. 
but I, I only watched some. I didn't, I didn't watch that much. Who shot Mr. Burns? Uh, it ends up being the baby. So, you know, Maggie. <laughs> then it goes back to normal. I don't think Burns dies. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think Burns dies. So it's just like, yeah, it, it does the exact same thing. They go back to just the, the regular. One thing I will link in the show notes is um, one of my favorite political comedy podcasts is doing a mini series on Stitcher about American television and that loosely they're trying to talk about how like American TV fits into the growth of the American empire. Uh, they, they, they don't always like fulfill that ambition, but that's like loosely supposed to be the idea. And um, they did an episode on Dallas and all the crazy cliffhangers in Dallas uh, a few weeks ago. That was pretty, pretty interesting. I, uh, I enjoyed hearing them discuss Dallas, which is a show I knew about, out, but I'd never seen and which obviously who shot Mr. Burns is, uh, you know, mocking the, the cliffhanger in Dallas of who shot Jr. Yeah. It, it, you know, it didn't have the payoff. I'm also going back. Here's, here's something else you couldn't watch. Back in the day, South Park had a, uh, a two-part episode that was a cliffhanger at the finale where uh, you had to find out who Carpet's father was. Oh, I, w- I was such a cuck. I didn't even want to watch South Park. <laughs> I thought it was evil, Matt. <laughs> so, trust me, not, not, no, nothing came of that either. So, I think that kind of is the thing. It's just like it's just a way to draw you in to, so you'll make sure you'll, you'll tune in the next time, the next season. I will say in partial defense of this Babylon 5 two-parter, which I don't like, um, it does have a permanent effect on the Babylon 5 mythos. Um, it's not a good effect, I don't think. And, you know, it like it, but has a permanent effect and it's also not that important. It's a weird combination, but like it, things aren't going to be put in back into the box in exactly the same way that like uh, Star Trek Voyager or Star Trek The Next Generation would. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess we'll talk about it next week, but I just... Yeah, one, one other right quick now, point. Right now, it's like whatever. It's like there's some alien. They found him on planet. One other, <laughs> one other quick point, and the answer might just be no. But so I was when I was framing it, I was mostly talking about like Next Generation and Voyager doing like two-part season finale, season premieres. Um, did you ever... Did you ever find like the two parters like within a season more satisfying than the season cliffhanger season premiere, or did it all did it all just kind of blend together for you? Because like two parters like unification where you meet Spock in the next generation, or uh, Dark Frontiers one in Voyager, or Gambit is another one in Next Gen where I think like Picard goes, you know, he joins an evil team of archaeologists if I recall correctly. It, like it, it blended together for me. I never, I yeah. never really. I can't. I can even tell you. I, I forgot those were two parters, honestly, because I just watch. I just remember them as one singular piece. Mm-hmm. Especially as I watched a lot of it through streaming. So that, like I said, yeah, streaming has really yeah. changed that for me. You just go into the next episode. I'm so used to serialized uh, television shows now that it just kind of it all goes together. Well, and also maybe maybe I'm watching the wrong type of show, but I feel like the emphasis has really pivoted uh, away from season-ending cliffhangers. It feels like uh, people want a season to be a relatively like contained unit of storytelling. So, like even in like Discovery, like you know, you do have things happen at the end of Discovery seasons that sort of like reset the table. I don't know. It feels like a it, it feels like a change, not like a oh, can, you know, tune in tune in in twelve months to see you know how the next five minutes play out. 
Oh, I agree with that 100%. There's, most shows are like that now because I think they are not sure if they're going to be signed on for another season. Yeah, and audience dissatisfaction is a power is a much more powerful fear now because of the internet than it was in the '90s or the early aughts. Correct. Yes, that that's a big piece of it. I think. Uh, we I I just got done watching a show. This is uh, we're kind of going in the weeds with this episode, guys, because uh, honestly, these two episodes it's not that good. There's not that much to talk about. But there's a show called there's a show on uh there's a show called Mayor. I don't know if you've seen it. Mayor, Mayor of East Town. Mayor of East Town. Yes. Can you can you say this without spoilers? Uh, yeah. Hey, uh, my, my other co-host JR described very cleverly, I thought described it as Catholic Twin Peaks. Yes, it is. Yes, that's exactly. That's a fantastic description of it. It is, it is, it's a really good show. It's all self-contained, so you can watch it. You can watch the first season. You're going to get, you know, answers to what you're looking for. You'll be satisfied by the end of it. And you can say, okay, I can leave this place and every, I'd be fine with it. You know what I mean? Like there's no... I like. I need a season two. I've got to return to this. Oh, I thought I thought it was a. I thought it was a miniseries, not a season one. It is a miniseries. Sorry, yeah, it, yeah, it's a miniseries. But it it is one of those. I, presumably, it could do future cases. I guess. Oh yeah, you could. That's what I'm saying. You could, like you're saying, you could totally branch out and do more with this if they wanted to. Yeah. But there's nothing left that hasn't really been. Everything's been tied up nicely. Yeah, like Top of the Lake is another uh, show like that where it was like the first season was a miniseries and then. It you know wraps up the case. Uh, really, really great show I thought. And then they did a they did a second miniseries, Top of the Lake China Girl, like several several years later. That also was self contained, although that one got a lot of critical hate that I thought was undeserved. I thought Nicole Kidman and uh, is it Gwendolyn Christie, the woman from uh, Game of Thrones? I thought yes. they were excellent in that uh, in that uh, miniseries. Captain Phasma. One other two part question, or rather season cliffhanger question. Have you ever been watching a show and been relieved when a season ended on a cliffhanger? Okay, I will say this. Would you say Dexter season four? Was that really a cliffhanger or not? Yeah, it, I, I feel like that to me almost felt more like a discovery ending where it felt like a, re, you know, kind of like resetting the table. Yeah, yeah, but he still but, had, then he had two kids he had to deal with. Like, yeah. Of course, they did a, the next season was poorly done anyway, but like. I didn't. I didn't like season. Well, season it was also like that was. I I stopped watching Dexter after season four, uh, not not because they Rita right was his partner. Correct. Yes. Not because they killed Rita, but because I thought Dexter was a show that lived and died on its guest stars, and when they announced that they were like following, they were going to follow up John Lithgow by just having I think what was it Julia Stiles and Julia Stiles, Colin yeah. Hanks. Yeah. Was that was that who they got for season five? Yeah. I was just like, yeah, I don't I don't care. Like I want I want somebody you know, yeah, they they can do something different than Lithgow, but you need like a you know, it's like I wanna see um the guy who plays Dexter, whose name I forget, Michael C. Hall. Yeah. I wanna see Michael C. Hall act off like another like amazing actor. I don't wanna see just like Julia Stiles and Tom Hanks's kid. Yeah, I I, I did not like season five and uh season four leaving it with Rita in the bathtub dead. It was like, it to me, I was like, okay, I'm glad it ended this way because now we've got a really good setup for the next season, which never really came to be. There's more writing on there. Did it drag on for three seasons? Oh, after God, it, dra- it dragged on forever, and it was bad. Now they're coming out with another, a new season. Yeah. Dex- we- Dexter, the, uh, the what, the, the Axeman, the, the Woodsman? Yeah, he becomes like, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, though, that... <laughs> 
I'm very actually very interested in this this thing coming out because it's going to focus on them. They're being like they're, it's going to focus on being a podcast about true crime, and Dexter's one of the people they're talking about. Oh, interesting. And it's going to kind of spawn from that. <laughs> I mean, they they kind of already did that with the uh, how the Halloween sequel, which I, I thought was pretty good. Oh, I don't know. I didn't see that. Uh, it's, it's have right. you ever seen any of the Halloween movies? I've seen a ton of them, but I don't. I didn't see that one. You should. It's pretty good. It's not like amazing. It's pretty good. Okay. It's a. It's a lot better. Like it, it does that same sort of thing of like bringing back the older badass uh, female lead that like Terminator Dark Fate does, or um, but it or I get well. I guess it's not female, but Blade Runner twenty forty nine. But it does a much better job uh, than Blade Runner twenty forty nine, or at least in that regard. Or especially much better job than Terminator Dark Fate. All right, so we're gonna bring this back to uh, Babylon Five. <laughs> oh, yeah, but, but I just want to say that the time I was relieved that a season ended on a cliffhanger was the awful AMC show, The Killing, because I, I thought there was no way they could wrap up the murder mystery for season one in a satisfactory way, and I was really relieved when they ended on a cliffhanger. Uh, but then I didn't watch season two, regardless. So <laughs> great. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. So transition, tr- restore sanity to the show, Matt. Get us back to Babylon. Yeah. 5. Bring us back to Babylon Five. We'll talk about Thirst Watch. Uh, we have a very famous scene where Sinclair and Winters are standing out in front of the elevator. Winters points out that every time she goes into the elevator, Garibaldi's there, and Sinclair's like, "What? That can't be true." And then the doors open, and who's there? Garibaldi. And it's creepy. I don't know what it is between those two characters. Did they actually? Did they get married in real I life? I think they did. Yes. Okay. I think yeah. I th- I don't think it. I don't think the marriage lasted very long. So, but I think they did get married. I mean, maybe it's just a little meta. I don't know. It's just. It's just so weird. I, I don't. I don't like it. it freaks me it's out. It's ki- it's kind of like Charlie and the waitress and Always Sunny. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Um. And you had already mentioned that you know Malory was seduced into a lowborn marriage with a yeah. Stripper. I will. I will say like, t- like I think if you take the if you take the Garibaldi in the elevator scene like out of uh, out of context of the prior Garibaldi creeping on Winters scenes, it actually is pretty funny. Um, but it is a weird. It's a very weird touch for this particular episode because like. The major thrust of the episode is like, you know, Garibaldi like getting serious about like his old ex girlfriend who will be pretty important to the show actually, and so it's just it sets a weird tone for that, and it and it's also kind of weird because the you know the whole rest of the episode the theme is like Garibaldi's limitations like how he can't get through how he can't make contact, but then you know that like the whole thrust of the joke of the scene is that oh Garibaldi's you know sort of creepily omniscient when it comes to Winters. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it, it's just a very odd thing. Yeah, and then they also, Winters says that she'll take the stairs. So I went and pulled up the, uh, the station Sinclair guide. Too. Sinclair, well, Sinclair, too. Sinclair creeped yeah. out, too. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to take I, I'm gonna take a look at the station guide. I, I didn't see any stairs, so I, I don't know what stairs. Are there Jeffrey's tubes? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what they're going to do. There's stairs in the garden, apparently, but there's not stairs in, uh, that I'm, I'm aware of. I mean that I, I guess on the one hand it makes sense from a design point of view because you you're dealing with a lot of you know not a lot of space relatively speaking, but on the other hand it just you know ugh, given given elevators failure rates that doesn't seem like the best idea. 
Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, you're on. If you're on a space station, I guess it would make sense to have pretty solid escape plan for when you need to get down to like the escape pod themselves. So you would need something, somebody to get there that doesn't result in like if if the power's out, the elevators don't work. What are you gonna do? I don't know. I have to check into this now. Now I've got to do a little more research. But maybe I just missed. Maybe I just missed it, but. I mean, it still makes more sense than the uh, Crusade, where they don't appear to have elevators, but they do have a train that goes 120 miles an hour on a starship, which still still messes with me. There's some mathematics there, Bob. I don't know. I don't know enough about to figure out. I'm sure if the ship is traveling at a certain rate. <laughs> and, and well, I mean, the ship's got to be moving a lot faster than 120 miles an hour. Correct. That's what I'm saying. But I mean, if it's moving really fast, you have to take that into consideration with the how fast the actual elevator is moving. <laughs> like, how does that work? You see what I'm saying, Bob? This is complicated yeah. mathematics. This is not something I know how to do. Like, do you know how to do it? Because I don't. I mean, no. No, I do not. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure. All right. Well, to, to transition to something we do know something about, uh, who is your favorite character of the week, Matt? I'm just going to go with Koloth. Cause, uh, Why Koloth? I liked him in, in uh, Trouble with Triples. It was cool you to like... see him back. Okay. Apparently, Curzon called him the Iceman. That was his nickname for, for Koloth. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's a motherfucking Kang. He gets all the best lines. I really enjoyed Kang. Um, I like said, I, I only remembered Core, really, but uh, Kang, Kang really steals the show. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I think this is the easiest pick we've ever had to make, mm-hmm. Matt. But uh, what was your episode of the week? Uh, yeah, Blood Oath wins this week. Blood Oath for sure. Yeah, yeah, no argument here. All right, I'm hoping All part right. two is better. I don't know. If you've seen it, I haven't. I don't, I, don't I I don't think it's better. I think it clarifies a lot, but I don't think it's better. Ugh, okay. All right. So join us next time where uh, we suffer through Voice in the Wilderness Part 2, which is Episode 17 of Babylon 5. And we're also going to uh, tackle another mediocre two-parter, the uh, two-parter Maquis, uh, which is episode 20 and 21 of Deep Space Nine. Uh, so as always, dear listeners, we are here suffering for you. Uh, this has been Bob from Cascadia. I've had Matt from the Southland on the line. Everybody have a good day. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. Uh, for show notes, subscribe to our Substack, b5vsds9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or another podcatcher. Take a screenshot, email that screenshot to us with your question at b5vsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question on the show. Uh, We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com.